every one of your institutions suck because every one of your institutions have preyed upon people in the ways I've just described. And God does not prey upon people. And you've done it in his name. From the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we're learning together how to walk in the age of fulfillment. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for life and thank you for all that you give and bestow upon us. Whether we recognize those things or not, uh, we, we thank you uh, in general for all things. Uh, we thank you for your son. We uh, pray together as seekers of truth that you'll be with us uh, here as uh, Seth and, and Wendy and Mags and uh, get the show going and out there to people and people who are watching the archives and people who are watching tonight and whatever else. Lord, we just uh, pray for them. We pray for our nation and our elected officials. We pray that in this time of great uncertainty in the United States that you will be with uh, us and you will uh, make your will known. We pray, uh, Father, that... Um, You'll bless the people of Armenia that we've asked, a sister asked for us to bless for those people who are under some genocidal attack. We pray for the youth of our world. We pray for the gospel to go forth. And we pray for people who are trapped in religious bondage, that they will be free. And so be with us now as we continue forward together in spirit and truth, in Jesus' name, amen. I want to take a minute and read a kind of a representative email that means so much to me and our family. It comes from a man named Dave who lives in California, and he posted this on our first uh, campus teaching through Romans. And he says, I'm all, caught up on the, I'm all caught up on the podcast series, Milk and Meat. I'm glad because I have this comprehension ordered in such a way, comprehensive. I'm just fortunate to have followed through, digested the word, the bread of life through reading and HOTM campus. I've watched since 2008 or nine. You can't stick with many people that long. And I want Sean to know that he has another California fan. I like his delivery. Most importantly, he knows hopefully how well viewers like me have seen him die to his flesh over time as he radiates joy and love and a better suntan. And I want him to know uh, I'm inspired. Only spiritual connection to the light source will save this world or cosmos. Thanks, Mr. McCraney and his family. All praise and glory to God. Dave, your uh, encouraging words mean more than you might know. And we are so blessed to know that we can somehow add to your uh, walk uh, in the name of our King. And uh, thank you for giving me chances because I fail and I do different things that are not correct. And that we've pressed forward together seeking to hear all... Uh, uh, glory, as you said, to God. Additionally, we want to express our appreciation to, and love to all of you who are part of our online and live church family. Uh, I read about your pain from other religious forces in your life, how you have come out of Mormonism or Catholicism or Seventh-day Adventists and, or anything, and you have turned to liberation in Christ alone. And so we rejoice with you. We truly are grateful uh, and do gather together to understand Scripture and so blessed to have an opportunity to be involved with this work with you. And uh, thank you for your prayers, love, and support. So, <clears throat> last week, part one of Chomping on Chomsky, 
Sorry. <coughs> I tried to set the table on the thinking by which I became a Christian anarchist or how I came to see the faith the way I see it. And of course, that's couched in what the scripture says. I explained that there were a number of things relative to the development of secular anarchy that helped me see the value and viability of Christian anarchy in the faith, especially today. Those things include my affinity for the principles of what is called classical liberalism, which is no relationship at all to what uh, left liberalism is today. They're not anything like the same. And it was promoted, as we said last week, by guys like John Milton and John Locke and Thomas Jefferson, Adam Smith, John Stuart Mill, even Abraham Lincoln. Remember that the view presented, uh, this view of uh, liberal, classical liberalism, it is um, presented in the idea that human nature ought to be met with unconstrained activity that, quote, every individual in nature is given an individual property by nature, not to be invaded or usurped by any, and that no man or institution has power over the rights and liberties of another, and no other over any man, end quote. And I really believe that relative uh, to the faith especially, but even I believe in it relative to our government. So the idea of classical liberalism was to have a society where each individual progresses in his or her own individual way according to who they are and allows them to ultimately get to a place where they will choose to contribute who they are and what they think and believe to society in the way that they want to, again, with minimal interference from any outside power or uh, of any kind. And I'm personally and certainly in full agreement with these tenets of classical liberalism as we defined them last week. But then we talked about how men and their institutions and their ways, uh, capitalists here and communists uh, elsewhere, uh, entered into the game to some extent, just depending on what we're talking about, and essentially snuffed out the view of classical liberalism and replaced it with the notion of justifiable infringement, and which led to controls being implemented and ultimately to slavery of different expressions and different degrees and flavors, depending on how you see it. And we pointed out how secular corporate and governmental anarchy was a reaction to these infringements and that there were and are various responses to try to get classical liberalism back uh, working uh, among us today. And at that point, I quoted Chomsky and his definition of general anarchy, and he said, primarily, anarchism is a tendency that is suspicious and skeptical of domination, authority, and hierarchy. It seeks structures of hierarchy and domination in human life over the whole range extending from, say, patriarchal families to, say, imperial systems, and it asks whether those systems are justified. That's the first question. Their authority, these systems, is not self-justifying, he says. They have to give reason for it, a justification. And if they can't justify that authority and power and control, which is usually the case, 
then the authority ought to be dismantled and replaced by something more free and just. That's the second part. So the first part is, are the systems justified? Can they self-justify? And the second uh, response from an anarchist point of view is if they can't self-justify, that they be dismantled and something that brings more liberty, uh, more freedom, uh, a better approach is implemented. And then he says, and as I understand it, anarchy is this tendency. It takes different forms at different times. So we wrapped up the show by pointing out that this is the heart or at the heart of Christian anarchism as well. Uh, to one, call out the current systems of Christianity as illegitimate and forcing them to reasonably justify their existence and the authority they claim to have over people relative to God. And then two, to take any Christian system that fails to justify their authority, uh, control, and power over people and to help dismantle them as a means to replace them with something more liberating and better. Now, before we address this two-pronged approach to uh, anarchistic um, powers that be, to anarchistic approach to powers that be, I mentioned last week that there are a few Christian anarchists that have preceded me, so I'm not original on this. Jacques Ellul is one. He's a French guy. And then um, Leo Tolstoy, the Russian, uh, is another guy. But, uh, and I've been great, uh, benefited greatly from their insights, um, but they took their anarchy, like Tolstoy, and they assigned Christian anarchy to secular anarchy as well. And they told Christian anarchists to be secular anarchists. I don't agree with that in the least. Not here. I am apolitical. I am not part of this world's kingdoms. And I leave all responses to politics to those who care. Those people who are involved in it, that's their thing. I let them have it. My anarchistic focus is solely on the faith. And that is why I define it as Christian anarchy. Christian. Meaning that the focus of the anarchy is relative to all things Christian. And I define all things Christian according to what can be contextually determined and supported by the Christian book called the New Testament. So, to the first objective of Christian anarchy, laid out and borrowed from Chomsky, a Christian anarchist, I label all the current systems of Christianity as illegitimate and demand that every one of them reasonably justify their existence and their authority and control and the demands that they place on others. So there are several points I want to make before we briefly examine the claims these institutions make to justify their supposed authority. The first point I want to make is that the most basic proof to me, of having the authority of God. Remember, that's what we're talking about. The authority from God to speak and act on his behalf. The most basic proof that you have authority is in the pudding. The proof is in the pudding, meaning in your collective hands of maintaining an authority to act on behalf of God, you have allowed for a number of things to occur that stand in direct contradistinction to Christ, to God himself. 
So that should be the first thing we look at when someone or something or some institution claims authority to act on God's name. What have you done with that authority over the course of your history? And what has, uh, what has Christianity done with the authority that they claim to have? Well, we have colonialism, we have slavery, we have racism, we have misogyny, and we even have violence. And, and those things are substantiated over the course of history. So you claim that God is behind you, and yet you, I mean, we're going to talk about slavery in a while, especially with slavery and with the way we've treated women. You having the authority of God, what have you done with that authority? And by the fact that you have messed it up proves you don't have authority at all. You have politicized what Jesus never made political. And instead of loving all people and condemning none, you have collectively preached hate against different groups, Jews, homosexuals, adulterers, people who are addicted to vice, and all non-Christians of other faith, you have criticized them, said, alienated them. Finally, with your authority and power and your demands, you have all chosen to put people in bondage to denominationalism, to division, to doctrinal demands, to more law, to tithes, to materialism, to serving and fearing. It's all about control, dominance, money, and everything else. I don't force anybody to, uh, they are loved by me if they go absolute contrary to everything I say and do, unless it means hurting somebody. So, you know, you, you just, you speak all these ways with nonsensically not being able to justify any of your positions. And you're the cult leaders. You're the ones who let people pick on other people and force them to believe like you want them to believe and act like you want them to act. So specifically, our Catholic friends claim some sort of direct line from Peter uh, to the Pope for their authority. It's probably the best um, argument for having authority, although it's completely fictionalized. You know, they say Peter went to Rome and all this stuff. It's completely made up. And, but in and of itself, what they have done with that authority proves that they're not worthy of it, even if they have it which I don't think they do. But the Catholics among all religions have the best, in, in the Christian faith, have the best claim to an authority, and yet they've done probably the most harm with it. So they're disqualified. Um, if your authority doesn't maintain the tenets of the faith in the New Testament taught by Christ, your authority's false is a simple way to put it. Orthodoxies, Russian, Greek, and other orthodoxies, Coptic, if you can call them that, they're worse because what they did is they're following the authority of the Catholic Church. And then I can't remember the date, 1010 or something like that. The Great Schism occurs where Orthodox Christians of the, of the Byzantine Greek Empire said, we don't like what the Catholics are doing. We're breaking off. So they broke off from the authority that they claim to have had. And they believe that they could break off from the authority and still have the authority. So they're worse because they, they, God doesn't have you break off. God has his line. And he doesn't let men say we're breaking off and establish a different line of authority. That's the biggest criticism really against uh, orthodoxy. 
but their schismatic approach. Plus, they maintain so many non-biblical demands about Mary and relics and holy days and law, all this stuff, uh, nothing to do with the New Testament. Nothing in the New Testament to support their authority. Protestants, protos, you guys have nothing to stand on but water, and you can't stand on that. Uh, you've got nothing. Big denoms, little small country churches, not one of you can justify any sort of claim to having authority over another human being in the name of God. Your priests, your pastors, your reverends are all a joke in terms of authority. And if I'm wrong, write us, call in or what we can't call in, write us and tell us, you're wrong, I have authority and this means you can't do it. So you can't justify speaking to, the, to your congregates for God. You can't justify disciplining people in the name of God. You can't justify commanding them to do anything in God's name relative to the faith. And yet you assume this right. And to some extent for another, you've assumed it since the 1500s. You have zero line of authority. There's no line of authority. Zero apostolic authority. And while you claim the Bible gives you your authority, that's the thing that makes me laugh. The Bible gives me our, I have my authority from the Bible. Nowhere does the Bible say, I give you authority. Nowhere does the Bible say anyone has authority. And worse yet, you take the Bible and you differ with 10 million other Christians about its contents. So how is your authority uh, right in, in the uh, light of what the gospel and the, uh, and the uh, epistles say. So you don't have any authority, nowhere. Most of the letters Paul wrote weren't even addressed to this age. They were addressed to people back then. You don't have living apostles overseeing you. You haven't received anything passed down. You don't have access. Many of you, contrary to the model of Jesus, uh, when he chose his apostles, which was to pick fishermen and people who were tax collectors and hated, you, you have established your authority on formal educations. People with MDivs from Harvard and Yale and PhDs, and you say, that gives us our authority. Nothing like what Jesus did at all. So all your learning combined hasn't amounted to anything in the unity of the flesh, and it's only uh, amounted to more division. So your SOL when it comes to even justifying one smidgen of authority other another human being when it comes to the faith, and yet you exercise it, don't you? You don't speak with authority. You don't possess authority. Your relentless failures to teach the Word of God contextually and reasonably condemn and bribes. You have lost your authority as a cop. It doesn't matter anymore. You have fallen from that. So step aside because you're liars and you're hypocrites, abusers and infringers upon the life and liberties of others. Every one of you religionists who step up and claim authority to speak for God and who impose things upon individuals in his name, you're liars and hypocrites. You do not have that authority. So I challenge any pastor, any priest, any reverend, any big church, small church, to justify their, uh, their authority over anyone on this earth in the name of God because it will not take long 
to blow a freaking hole in your argument. Big enough for the Pope to walk through, pointy hat and all. Boom. You're dead. All right? So let's, we talk about the first principle that Chomsky said. Discover whether these institutions of domination and control and authority can justify themselves. That's the first thing. So that's the first principle, and they cannot. When the institutions fail to justify their authority, which they all do, the second phase becomes operational, which is to seek to dismantle them, which is pretty much what we do week in and week out with the show, and to replace what they have with something more liberating and better, uh, which is what we've been trying to do for years. Note that something better here, note that something better here is not another denomination. Uh, hear that really clearly from me. The something better is what God instituted in the face of material religion being blown apart nearly 2,000 years ago by him. It's a subjective faith led by the Holy Spirit in individuals. How does that look and work and is it justified by Scripture? To answer this question first, this last question, is it justified by Scripture? Of course it is. I mean, the very fact that the Holy Spirit moves into the hearts and lives of individual people ought to tell us that the faith is individually lived and experienced, that each and every one of our choices as believers is between us and the living God, and that the rules and laws and ordinances of men were long ago nailed to the cross of Christ. That's why it says the ordinances were nailed to the cross. That's why the veil was rent in two. Institutions seeking to insert themselves between God and individuals appeal to three things when they do this, all of which we have proven fiction to justify themselves as having positions of power. They appeal to tradition. They appeal to direct revelation and they appeal to the Bible itself. But none of those things hold water, as we've already discussed. The first, tradition, tradition says tradition should be supported, which is unbelievable. Tra the tradition is that, tradi that the tradition is important. So that's like self-justifying. It's included in the description of justification itself. Not good. And direct revelation, that's, that's what everybody does who wants to come up with a new way. Joseph Smith, his revelation, uh, the guy in the cave, Muhammad, another revelation where he comes from. Everybody comes up with the revelation. Ellen G. White, Mary Baker Eddy, Russell Taz Nelson, Russell Chat, whatever, right? These guys all receiving the revelation to come up with a new denomination to justify the new authority. We have biblical evidence that, let me give you these things. We have biblical evidence that Yeshua supported rogue believers. In Mark 9, his apostles wanted to jump on a guy for not being with them. Jesus said, if he's not against us, he's for us. That's called liberty. That's called freedom in the faith, established way back then. We have biblical directives from God himself that says that in the day past, the age of the Jewish law, that he would write his laws on people's minds and hearts. Think about that. You can read that written word and you're going to come up with 10,000 different uh, ideas about what it says. And we have proven that. But when the spirit is moving on individuals, it's, it's the faith and the love. And that's what comes through for his children. 
We have the day of Pentecost, 3,000 Jews. This is going way back to the nascent church. The Holy Spirit falls on them and they return and they establish churches where they go back to without apostolic direction or bishops or elders or deacons or anything. They just go back and they establish it, right? We have Paul who did not convene or consult with the original 12 apostles, but he went out doing what the Holy Spirit led him to do and he boasts about that. He says, I didn't go and seek any other man. That is called anarchy. That's called Christian anarchy. We don't see anybody as having authority over us, but God, but God, but Christ, right? Then we have the contextual repeated evidences that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church bride of that day. 30, right? No, the Holy Spirit, Christ has been in charge of his church, his body on earth, individuals by the Holy Spirit. The word is a blessing. I love it, but it is not what gives us our power and authority. So the new age of subjective faith by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit began, and that was the age of classical Christian uh, libertarianism. Classic Christian libertarianism. The Holy Spirit was in charge of individuals and touched them, and they lived their life as Christians according to faith and the Spirit in them and love an age where the Spirit led uh, individuals to emancipation from sin and fear and governments and religious institutions and from material religion. It was an age that echoed sentiment from the then-dead apostles who said things like 1 Corinthians 10.29, For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? Have you ever looked at that line? Why is my liberty judged of another believer's conscience? Someone thinks that someone thinks I can't have a beer. Someone thinks I shouldn't eat meat. Someone thinks I should dress differently. Why should my liberty be judged of another man's conscience? That was something Paul said. That's liberty. That's classical libertarianism. And 2 Corinthians 3.17, Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Give me freaking liberty in the faith or give me death. I've had death in Mormonism. I've had death in evangelical Christianity. Give me liberty in Christ or give me death because that's what's all about. He came to set the captives free. Remember what Paul said in Galatians 5.1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. I look around at these church here in Utah and other places, and most of them, they have yokes of bondage they put on people. In some way or another, to some extent or another, they're there. And that is antithetical to what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. Galatians 5.13, For brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Don't use your liberty for the occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Meaning you're called to liberty, but use that liberty to love each other, right? There was no agreed upon New Testament guiding believers then. There was no compiled body of written letters for them to even read. There were no living apostles to correct or punish or discipline people. And there were no traditions to be upheld or codified that even existed except the traditions of material religion, which were done away with. 
They're just into tongue in cheek, but I also mean it. We ought to replace it with the best approach to Christianity on the face of the earth. Sorry. <laughs> People have criticized this. I get why, but it's so funny. But what is that best approach? It's free. It's, a, it's, a, it's an approach to reaching, teaching, and serving others. We call it campus. Christian anarchy meeting to prayerfully understand scripture. This is something that I see as supported by everything we've just talked about. And in contrast to what has been, which should not be, there's no memberships. There's no authority over doctrine, practice, standards, lifestyle, dress, opinion, no demands, nothing signed, no commitments, no tithes or offerings gathered or collected, no intrusions into the beliefs or opinions of others, our managerial hand over the material elements, meaning we have a building, amount to our making sure that the rent is paid, the lights are turned on, securing the assets, making sure people don't break in and steal anything, and allowing anyone, believer or not, to use the facilities whenever they want without a price or cost for whatever they want to do. We do not impose church discipline. Uh, we open every, uh, we close every gathering that we have up with question and answer and dialogue back and forth. We study the word together to try to get understanding. I'll lead that, but admit that I can possibly be wrong and have been wrong. And, and, and then the audience will say, yeah, at this point, maybe you ought to clarify that, things like that. And I'll change my mind if I can. All people are always welcome. We pray in Jesus' name. We sing Bible verses set to music. We exist and we exit the place to be Christians on our own, in our own lives for the rest of the week. So we spend an hour, whether milk or meat, hour and a half maybe, and we do those things I just said. And it exists. No, it's not mega church like. No, it's not frequented by a lot of people. As free as it is, it's, it's not popular. It's astounding to me. People would rather go to a building, have a pastor tell them that they have the authority, tell them that God wants them to pay tithes, to look a certain way, live a certain way, and they'll flock to those places rather than being emancipated by the Holy Spirit to live their lives and be accountable to God himself. That's why churches proliferate. But we believe in Christian anarchy. And it's Christian subjectivism. And it's classical Christian liberalism. And it's the best approach to Christianity on the face of the earth because it was instituted by God through Christ 2,000 years ago, supported by Scripture. All you have to do is look at what organized religion, individually or collectively, has done in the course of these past 2,000 years. And you can see that while they may do some good, it's still slavery. It's still putting people in bondage in the name of God.
Let's take a gander at your online comments from last week. Going to go back and read those and then wrap it up. How much time do we have, Seth? All right. Truth Seeker talking about the Book of Mormon and Doctrine and Covenants of the Mormon Church contradicting themselves says, Tisk, Tisk. I don't like that little phrase. It was the misuse of plural marriage by David and Solomon that was rebuked by God, not proper polygamy. Wake up people and learn how to understand your scriptures. Not until David fell into lust and murder was the practice condemned uh, upon David. God gave David's wives to another. All right. Well, I just want to say this about polygamy uh, and your interpretation of it. When a woman or women were living in polygamy at that time, which men wanted and God allowed, uh, when God gave his, David's wives to others, uh, that's no indication of God saying, this is what I've wanted. God works with man and mankind in their fallible ways, and he lets them kind of uh, have their just desserts for the choices they make. If you want to know God's view of polygamy, all you have to do is go back to the beginning. How did he create us? One man, one woman. Sorry, brother. That's it. And all you got to do is look at who the first polygamist was, and it was Lamech, and it was the son of Cain, and he wanted more than one wife. Now, the fact that... I, I had to say that. Uh, these are wise young men, says Kathy Rosa, about uh, Christians who don't go to church, Christian Anarchy Today show. They are, and they're unique, and they have different experiences, so I love that. Uh, and then... Uh, Let's go to Ajax Ashford. I quit going when the NIV was all they would read, is what he says. Lori Nielsen says, when the COVID virus are around, it's been good to be able to watch church online. And uh, I, th I think that's great. AVC says, good video, man. Vanessa Braga says, relating to a show that we called Jesus, my stepfather being a devout Catholic would attend classes and workshops to better understand the Holy Trinity. For years he studied. As a Mormon, I thought I knew more than him, but felt sorry for the Holy Spirit not getting a body until after everyone else. You summed up in eight minutes what most people spend their lifetime trying to understand, so thank you. Well, praise God. I'm glad I was able to help that way. It does get confusing when everything gets thrown in the mix, but I think I'm starting to understand it more clearly now. Uh, under the show Jesus, Catholic says exactly, Jesus was God with us. Uh, scripture says that, absolutely, got to say that. Uh, right on, brother, Seek Fine says about Jesus. Lang Lanigame says, Then why does Christ ask to be glorified back to the glory he had with his Father before the world existed? He's quoting John 17, 5. If he isn't a distinct person in the complex unity of God, I wonder. And it's a great question. You have to ask, why would he say that, Right. So when Jesus was talking, how was he going to explain what uh, he was before uh, he came to earth unless he refers to himself? I mean, give me the glory I had uh, with you before the world was, right? And so he, he, he's, he's asking for that. But if you see him as the word of God made flesh, God's word is powerful and glorious. The logos of God is everything of God. 
and that was glorious, that condescended and took on human flesh. So when Jesus in the flesh says, give me that glory again, he's now talking about taking his whole person up, the flesh too, and to get that glory, which he did get. So it, it gets dicey. It's a tough one because Christ in his flesh says, give me the glory. And what we do is we automatically read that there was a person named Jesus before who had glory with his father. But that is not what it's saying. He's saying, I had glory with you before as your word. I became flesh. I overcame all things. Now give me, Jesus of Nazareth, the glory I had with you as the word uh, before. And uh, if you start to see it in those terms, that difficult passage that makes many people think Jesus is a separate person like baby Jesus or short-haired Jesus or not gray-haired Jesus compared to God, uh, the Father, I think it might help. Greg Moore says of the show on Jesus, I can really see your LDS background and tradition permeating your exegesis of that text. Um, and I, that may be true. There could be things that I learned as a Latter-day Saint that came through uh, from that, just as your prejudicial views of God as a Trinity come through when you see it. Uh, all I can say is that I can use Scripture to directly support my claims, directly, not inferred, directly support my claims that there is God the, who is the Father and there is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I say. All your Trinitarian stuff you had to learn. Uh, Haruchi says, thank you for your support. She's talking about on the Chomsky show. We talked about praying for the boys in Armenia. Uh, on interview with Lindsay Hansen Park, executive director of Sunstone, I as well am so angry at Mormon God. Thanks for putting that into words. I know of no other gods, though. A.W. wrote that. A.W. also said, speaking of Chomsky a show last week, I never thought of prayer in this way. It's a startling concept. Thanks for putting it out there. And the concept was, I believe in the free economy that God has placed all of us in. He cannot, uh, he cannot step in and stop evil uh, just because he wants to. Uh, we have free will. But I suggest that maybe it's our prayers, our free will offered prayers on behalf of others that allows him to insert himself in this economy and act on our behalf when we pray for him to do it. And that's what he was talking about. Um, a perfect circle, talking about Chomsky's discussion last week, says capitalism doesn't fail if left to free market forces. Businesses fail. Other businesses take their place and so on. I would agree with you. However, that's not the case here in America because capitalism does fail if left to free market forces. How do we know that? They're called governmental bailouts. Letter of the law brings death. So I'd say without our liberty in Christ, we are as good as dead. And she's speaking to that whole thing I just gave to you about, look, these churches are putting people in bondage. In the end, there is slavery going on in spite of the fact that they do good, right? It's just like slave owners back in the day could do good, but they were putting people in bondage. 
It's the same principle, and that's why I'm a Christian anarchist. So I agree with her. In fact, that's where I got borrowed it. Give me liberty or give me death when it comes to the faith. I'd rather be dead in the grave. I would rather be dead and in the fictitious hell people talk about than to be in some sort of bondage in the faith. I will be in bondage to Christ. I will be in bondage to the Holy Spirit. I will willingly submit myself to being a slave to God through Christ. Absolutely. Because he's worthy of being a, a, a master of me. He's worthy of me being his slave. But, but men are not. And the institutions they create are not. They're not worthy of it. They don't have the, the authority. So I don't like this guy's name, Glass Farting Castle. What's wrong with you people? I can't. Under, anyway, he says, you always put a smile on my face, on my face, rolling on the floor, cheers. Heart of the Matter is an enjoyable way to learn about Christ in the Bible, where a normal church is a place I avoid like the plague, and there's really no discussion or insights to be had. And I, and I agree with you. That's why we do campus the way we do, and I thank you, GFC. Uh, Lindsay Lindsay says, bravo, wonderful, about the Chomsky show. Relative to Lee Baker, Lee Baker is a guy who uh, was LDS. He left the Mormon faith and became a Christian. And uh, he was uh, heralded about as being a Christian. And then Lee left Christianity and he became a noetic Jew. And in fact, Lee was going to come and he was going to present his beliefs about Jesus not being the true Messiah as a noetic Jew when we were going to do our Sunday's Best Conference, which is still uh, on the back burner until and when COVID leaves. All these guys want to do that, so we're going to do that. But anyway, we did a show about Lee Baker, and I think in that show I was like, leave the guy alone. Just let him, he'll work through whatever he is. Joan Landis wrote, I've always wondered why they talk about in priesthood meeting is a lot about polygamy. Just wondered where else the inflated egos of Mormon men comes from and where they get their lack of esteem for their wives. LDS women put so much into family life lives, so much giving, so self-sacrifice only to be dumped in their <laughs> later years. I'm tired of seeing old farts. That's twice in this show. I don't like that word. I'm tired of seeing old Fs in the church with much younger wives after they leave their first wives, the wife of their youth. I started to wonder about all of this because I kept seeing it play out in the world. I mean, what can we expect from the church that teaches its males that one wife woman is not enough to, compared to their amazing selves? Just curious, Sean, I wonder what you can add to your experience as an ex-LDS man. The only reason in my flesh I would have remained uh, Mormon was for polygamy. Remember the caveat, in my flesh. It's pretty natural for alpha males to want more than one woman. Uh, and maybe it's natural for alpha females to want more than one man. I don't know. It might be. I'm not a woman. But so that's total alpha male uh, domination. I want to have as many uh, women as I can. And it just Joseph Smith fully into that. He borrows from the Old Testament stuff. And you're right. When you get in the elders quorum meetings and the priesthood, they talk a lot about polygamy. And I've told the story before how I was up on the stage once and uh, a woman who was a, a divorcee came in with her children and sat on the back row in Huntington Beach. 
and the and the first counselor, whoever he was, leaned over and said, "I, I think that she'd make a fine second wife." Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's in your mind because that's one of the promises that you have as a Latter Day Saint that if you reach the celestial kingdom and you've done everything necessary, you will be sealed to more than one woman. It's still part of their doctrine. No one listens to that. Doctrine and Covenants 132, you can still have more than one wife. And that's played out by their leaders where Russell M. Nelson is sealed to more than one woman. He's still alive. He's their prophet. His first wife, his second wife, these guys are sealed to women on this earth. So when they die, they'll have more than one. And of course, the idea is a woman can bear... Uh, a man can inseminate several women at once. A woman can only bear one child at a time. So you have a whole gaggle, like the rooster and the hen thing. Sorry to bring it to an animalistic level. Question from George Barnschraft, Barnschmidt, Bauerschmidt. Sorry, George. Where in the Mormon doctrine text, written or spoken, does it reveal that God is progressing? Uh, if Mormons claim, I know this book is true regarding the Book of Mormon, then why do they not believe 100% from Moroni 8.18 that God is not Jesus Christ? If you tell an unregenerate person that God is saving them so that they can know him <coughs> and enjoy him for all eternity, that person will laugh because it's the exact opposite of what they want. It's one of the reasons I hold to Reformed theology because only God can transform a heart that has zero desire to know him into a heart that loves him and desires to dwell with him forever. If left up to human will, they would never choose him because no one seeks after God, not one single person in their natural sinful state. I would agree with you, Daniel, on Reformed theology on that first uh, uh, total depravity. I, that's the only uh, part of the tulip I think is supported by Scripture, but not to the extent that Calvin mentions it. Uh, what I see it as is that Unless God reached out to us through the Spirit, the prophets, His Son, the cosmos, nature, creation, children, through all those means, we would be as barbaric as humans could possibly be, not caring at all about Him. But because He has created us in these environs as free will individuals, God does break through that total depravity of our nature. And we do say, hmm, I wonder what this is about. So that's very different from the Calvinistic view of total depravity, which is you cannot do it unless God points to you, right? And elects you right there to believe. And I see it as he does it, but he does it through other means than just that direct uh, infringement upon free will. Uh, Sean, please pray for me. I had satanic ritual being done on me. I'm an ex-Mormon and now a born-again Christian. And, uh, all right. And I think we're going to stop there. Uh, although that might have been a good one, and we'll come back to it maybe next week if I can remember it. So uh, join us next week. Write your comments below. We're getting to them as, as soon as we can, and we're doing it on our uh, uh, Tuesday shows. And we're uh, really appreciative of your prayers, your support and your interest in Heart of the Matter. Keep seeking truth. Challenge, test everything I say, but don't be put in bondage. Don't be allow yourself to be put in religious bondage by these institutions. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter.